Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark, and with me is Anne Seymour. Anne, thank you for joining the show. I asked Anne to be with me on the show today because she is a crime victim advocate and because we talk so much about crime. Welcome very much to the show, Anne. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Heather. Okay. A crime victim advocate for 36 years, that sounds like a really long time. Tell me how you got involved with being a crime victim advocate and, you know, your different roles that you have held as a crime victim advocate, because I know off air we were talking about some different organizations that you've worked with. And so just give me some background on Anne Seymour and how you became a crime victim advocate, if you could. Well, I was a bit of an accidental tourist. I was uh, working in the California legislature and uh, applied to a blind ad that took me to Mothers Against Drunk Driving in Texas when MAD, uh, if you remember, they started in Sacramento, uh, when they went national in Texas, moved there to help out that organization. And five weeks later, I was in the Rose Garden of the White House with President Reagan signing the 21 drinking age bill. So it was uh, an early education on advocates, you know, also um, advocating for public policy changes. And then in 1986, with some colleagues from MAD, I co-founded what's now the National Center for for Victims of Crime. Um, And for the last, I don't know, about 25 years, I've sort of been an independent advocate, which means I get to do the work I want to do, and I'm very fortunate to work in all 50 states and here in D.C. where I live, and also a little bit internationally on um, a, a wide range of issues related to victims, including you know public policy. I do a lot of training, do a lot of work. Um, violence Against Women is a big issue, trying to get the Violence Against Women Act reauthorized, and so um, I'm very fortunate that, that I get to uh, never be bored in my work. Yeah, it sounds like you have, you know, a very good work situation, but surely this work can get you down. Oh, yeah. No, I've actually written extensively about vicarious trauma, and I know now with the pandemic and current public health crisis, a lot of people are talking about vicarious trauma, which is when you take someone else's trauma and, you know, think of it like a sponge in water. If you forget to squeeze out the sponge, the water just stays there and weighs you down. And I think that's what happens with a lot of people in my field. But we're we're very fortunate, and especially now um, during the public health crisis, we, we really do take care of each other. I have a regular group of, we call ourselves the old buffaloes, who've been in the field for a very long time, who stay in touch daily. And last week I got to speak to about 75 federal victim witness advocates, and those are folks who work for U.S. attorneys and the FBI and things like that. And it was just an incredible, you know, mutual support and information sharing group. And so our our field is very good at taking care of crime survivors, but we're also pretty good at taking care of each other. And that's something that I'm really quite proud of. Wow. You mentioned, are there others? I mean, I've never really thought about crime victims and crime victims advocates. They don't get a lot of press, and I don't hear a lot about them, but it sounds like you've got a a group. So how, was this a, I mean, when you graduated high school, did you say, I'm going to be a crime victim advocate? How did you, where did this come from? No, I actually wanted to be a probation officer, which is ironic that I I ended up in uh, the victim assistance field. But no, the field really, You didn't have victim advocates until the middle of the 1970s, and the field, I think, really got going in 1980 with the Violence Against Women's Organizations, Parents of Murdered Children, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, the National Organization for Victim Assistance, and so there was sort of a national um, impetus, and a lot of that was President Reagan. A little-known fact is that he, he declared Crime Victims' Rights Week the first Crime Victims' Week in 1981, just a couple of weeks after he himself was a victim of violent crime in his assassination attempt. And so President Reagan ended up with Attorney General Ed Meese. He created a, a President's Task Force on Victims of Crime. Uh, for your listeners who are interested in violence against women, there was a task force on family violence. And so, you know, back in the early 80s, at the national level, there were policy recommendations that became the framework, if you will, for our entire field, like here's what we need to do 
within the criminal justice system. Here's what we need to do. A lot of victims of domestic violence don't report, but can we still support them? The answer is yes. And so, you know, back then there was a, a lot of, uh, of national support. And then I think most important in 1984, the Victims of Crime Act, VOCA, uh, was authorized by Congress. And that created the Crime Victims Fund, which today supports both community-based and system-based victim assistance programs to the tune of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's not taxpayers' money. It's actually uh, funds that are paid by fines and fees that are assessed against convicted federal offenders. And so VOCA has really been able to help us expand funding for services for victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, a huge issue now and a big focus human trafficking. And so, you know, the field is, I I got a little nugget yesterday. I think there's 12,000 organizations in the victim assistance field, plus all the national folks that, you know, with whom I work a lot. So, you know, pretty, pretty widespread. And you have them in, you know, small rural remote communities, and you have them in highly urban communities like here in DC, where I live. So, you know, they're not, I mean, we can certainly use more. And now ironically, Heather, it is a profession. A, a little girl or boy could say, I want to be a victim advocate because it's a thing now. When I was young, it wasn't a thing, <laughs> I can assure you. No. <laughs> what, what about victim advocacy appeals most to you? Well, I think a lot of people get into the field because they themselves are crime survivors, um, and particularly in the fields of domestic violence and sexual assault. Once you've been a victim, and especially if your treatment wasn't, you know, fair or you felt like you could have been treated better, a lot of folks get involved because they want to make the world better for crime victims. They want, you know, back in my day, it was basic things like don't blame victims. I think we've gotten a bit past that. It was things like, you know, don't interrogate victims. Really basic things about, you know, making sure that victims were notified when the batterer got out of jail and was coming home to possibly re-harm him or her. And so, um, you know, basically I think a lot of folks get in our field to change things. And I, I think now since I got in the field, we've, we've changed 40,000 laws. I mean, 40,000, that's a bunch. And we've really, I think, had an impact on trying to make sure that victims have legal protections, and that's something that literally did not exist when I began in the field. In our state, Washington, we have a state office of victims' compensation, or I I think that's what it's called. And that office literally works with victims of crimes, helping them pay for things, helping them get compensation for stuff that's happened to them. If you're a rape victim and, you know, it used to be that the hospital would charge you, send you a bill for the rape test kit and, you know, things like that. So have you... Have you seen your work? This it, it sounds to me like it kind of started out grassroots, but it has moved up to another level. Have you seen a lot of victims' advocacy done that's become part of the bureaucratic system, and is that a good thing? I yeah. Well, it's a little bit of both. I think the beauty of our profession is that we are grassroots, and that is you know our roots our grassroots, and I do appreciate you pointing that out because victim compensation, the first program started in California in 1965. Now think about that. I can't do the math in my head, Uh, but it was a very long time ago. And so uh, we've seen a lot of institutionalization, like every state and territory and uh, D.C., we all have victim compensation programs. So, you know, you gave a great example where uh, a, a rape victim would not be sent the bill for the rape kit. Victim compensation pays that. When a battered woman needs to immediately leave home and get into a shelter or transitional housing, victim compensation will help with that. Funerals, victim compensation helps with that. And so, you know, in every state we have a comp program and we also have a a statewide uh, director who manages the federal funds that come through to the states, which come from you know, a wide variety of things, VOCA, which I mentioned earlier, of course, the, the Violence Against Women Act. So it's, it's an interesting, and I haven't thought of this before, so thank you, Heather. It's a balance between governmental agencies, which, yes, I probably could be called bureaucratic, between them and then also, you know, the grassroots and the pop and mom organizations that are out there very often um, founded by survivors. And, you know, we coexist beautifully. I, 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 
a prosecutor-based victim assistance program would not be effective unless they had the rape crisis and battered women shelter advocates working with victims, you know, and helping them um, if they choose to be witnesses in a criminal case. And so there's a symbiotic coexistence that I haven't really thought about till now, but it's very, I think it's very powerful and one of the reasons our, our field is successful. Well, and I think the whole women's movement, the whole, you know, domestic violence, those were all grassroots movements. I mean, people sitting in their kitchen going, we need to do something, you know, Susie, you do this and, you know, Johnny, you do that. And organizations sprung up. Yeah, when we, you know, we've written a lot about the roots of our field and it really was, our foundation was the women's movement, I mean, especially, as you say, focusing on violence against women, which was, it's always been here, just wasn't talked about. And then also the civil rights movement and um, the Vietnam uh, War movement, which, and I was pretty involved with a lot of those folks. I mean, they really taught us to, it was okay to stand up for your rights and not take no for an answer. And so political organizing, especially in my field, the violence against women advocates were exceptional uh, political organizers and and remain that way today. I mean, some of the folks here in D.C., I'm in awe of them, um, how they are just very, very committed to federal and state public policy that trickles down to improve the lives of crime survivors. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Well, and that's, uh, that was an era of change when these movements all became started. It, it was definitely an era when uh, social change was occurring at a grand scale, and which makes me think, you know, I'm, I'm going to put on my, you know, old cranky person's hat here for a moment. But as a, as a child of the 70s, I look at our culture today, and I don't see a lot of younger people who are taking up the mantle of leading the charge for social change. I think I I see some that's called social change, but it's not the same level as what we're talking about. Do you have any grasp at all of what I'm trying to get at here? Where where are the... Well, I I, I think it's a different era. You know, back when, you know, in the 70s, when we were... 70s and 80s. I mean, our thing was when you got nothing, you got nothing to lose, and it's it's different now. I think for young people, it's not as dire straits as it was back then. But I can speak for amazing young people in my life who are their dire straits now are climate change. Their dire straits are treatment of the LGBTQ community and and um, equal rights for people of color. So they have their issues, and I will say in, in the victims field, we do have young people. We actually have, we have universities where you can get a degree in victimology. I mean, that did not exist um, back in my day. But, but I, do think, I do think there's activism, but it's very different, and I think you're prescient in noticing that, that it wasn't, you know, we were desperate, and I, I don't want to say angry back then, but it just, there was so much unfairness and I think there is still great unfairness in this world but not to the degree that that you and I clearly experienced and and that's something I mean I'm glad we're talking about this because we do need young people um, folks like me and you know I've got a couple more years and then I'm retiring and a big part of my job and how you met me through my listserv is um, is mentoring young people to really help them get the skills they need to to be a leader, not just the agency head, but to be kind of a fearless leader, which I I think I can safely say I have been my entire career. So, you know, the more we can do to encourage young people, I think it's just a, you know, it's a great thing that we should all be focusing on. Well, and I think that we need to do more, and we need to focus more on not just those causes, if you will, that get a lot of publicity. I think that we do need to look more at uh, the grassroots origin of many of these things. So that's my rant. <laughs> I'll promise. I promise I won't rant anymore. No, yeah, um, it's but, not. Uh, it's, no, no, it's not a rant. Let me give. Let me give you an important example. Is that there's pretty significant research that if you're a child who grows up in a family of domestic violence, I don't use the word normalized, but the research does, that that behavior becomes normalized for you. And so you have in a, you know, what would be a traditional domestic violence family situation, the young boys will learn that, you know, dad is the one who ends up, you know, strong and powerful. And the girls learn that mom gets the crap beaten out of her. Sorry for saying that. Um, 
but gets you know mm. severely injured, and that becomes you start to look at the the gender roles, and so it is important because there is learned be a lot of learned behavior, child abuse, domestic violence, that that we do need to think about the the next generation, and uh, I you know when I work with especially young people who are, are in the juvenile justice system in detention or, or folks in prison, very few of them do not. I mean, they all almost all have uh, pretty extensive victimization experiences, and a lot of it is family violence, where violence becomes the norm. And so, yeah, that's my rant, sister. We do need to worry about We need to worry a lot about that because, you know, we talk about breaking the cycle of violence, but, boy. Yeah. Well, let me let me see if I still have a pair of those bell bottoms in my closet, and we can go march. <laughs> so, um, I, one of the, I do, and I yeah. still have a few signs from back then. So, I do too. But to tell you the truth, I could not wear those pants over my left leg anymore. Rather, <laughs> so you know, age does change some things. Um, okay, that's I a nice that. aside. But I, I do want us to get back to the serious topic. One of the things that you talked about initially when we first started our conversation was that you it was started as a grassroots movement because people either who had been involved in crime or who knew people who had been involved in crime uh, kind of banded together and created a movement. Then you also mentioned that that movement very quickly for you turned into policy work. Please tell me the difference between policy work and the grassroots work that I've been describing, you've been describing? Well, the, I, I can probably just use the example of Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Candy Leitner's daughter was killed in a drunk driving crash in 1980. Um, and similarly, a wonderful woman in Maryland, her daughter, um, Laura, was uh, she became the youngest quadriplegic because of a drunk driving crash. And in both states, that wasn't really a crime. They literally was not a crime. And so the two moms got together at other sides of the country. And the grassroots part of it was, you know, going to the media, which was really important, but also a lot of other survivors and victims came forward and said, yeah, that happened to me too. And so, the, you know, one of the things that MAD did was change the 21 drinking age bill, and they did that when I became involved. There was a patchwork of state laws where you could literally, uh, you, you couldn't, um, let me get my state correct, you couldn't drink at, you had to be 21 to drink in Illinois, but you could cross over to Wisconsin and get liquored up and drive back, and you know how that worked out. And so MAD passed the, the 21 drinking age bill. They passed laws where um, bars could be held uh, liable if they overserved someone who was, you know, clearly had too much alcohol in them. Um, so there was uh, lots of things that grassroots led to public policy. And the biggest thing for MAD was making drunk driving a crime. And I can't believe I have to even say that to you, but back in 1980, it was not a, a crime. It was like a misdemeanor, you know, driving felony, even if you killed someone. So they started it with grassroots intent. It was very, very survivor-focused, but learned quickly. And it was, it's just funny when you deal with the media back then. You know, the media were really good on saying, have you thought about this? Or, you know, there, and there was just some great partnerships that, that occurred where we learned a lot about um, public policy. And, and for victims, you know, both through uh, the VOCA and the Violence Against uh, Women Act, it, it, it became the policy became uh, getting funding for victim services because that was a it was and remains a challenge. I'm sure you've talked to you know domestic violence shelters who turn survivors away, especially now it's really bad, and rape crisis centers who you know can't they have to turn sexual assault clients away because they don't have enough funding for mental health counselors. And so, yeah, policy is just kind of amping it up a little bit. Without, I don't feel like I've ever lost my my grassroots, I still every week talk to survivors. I mean, that's just, you know, that's part of who I am and what I do. But it also keeps me connected to understanding that, like we were saying earlier, you know, it's different times, but if I was a survivor today, I would feel like I got nothing to lose. Like Ann Seymour felt 36 years ago, I think I might feel that same way. And and that's the grassroots beauty of our field. But we've also gotten real smart at passing laws and getting funding because that's what it takes. Yeah. 
Well, and you mentioned that you know the the, the PR impetus of um, uh, mothers without dri- uh, uh, mothers against drunk driving. I mean, I think a lot of these policies were created not because of need, but because of the PR involved. They were pointed out to the policymakers how ludicrous or how uh, you know sad or how whatever or how damaging it was to leave things the way that they were. So. That brings me to my next question, which is, what are we doing now? What are victims' advocates doing now to foster the change, uh, to follow that kind of PR campaign in order to continue to make change, especially now? First, identify the needs of victims. I mean, victims are very much all over the map in terms of their specific needs and then try to find the resources to meet them. And I think increasingly we're seeing partnerships between victim advocates, certainly the criminal and juvenile justice system, but also um, public health and people who um, provide food in food deserts and um, housing and other areas where victims' needs can be met sometimes beyond the capacity of um, victim advocates. And then a lot of folks, um, both in Congress and at the state level, you know, we're always looking to change and improve laws that define and protect victims' rights. Now there's probably about 33,000 laws around the country, and a lot of them now because of the pandemic, for example, laws are having to be changed so that we can have um, virtual protective orders and virtual court hearings and things that um, rely more on teleservices than, than ever before. But it's it's pretty much what we've always done is there's just a lot more of us doing it now, and that is to make sure that we're um, really trying to figure out what an individual victim needs and how we can best link them with um, services and support that can help them cope with the immediate and short and very often long-term trauma of victimization. You mentioned the the virtual hearings and the virtual thing. Has there been any place that's actually doing virtual trials? I mean, I know the Supreme Court is meeting in session, but that's different from a trial. And I know that in many areas, my my own included, you can get protective orders and things like that. But I have not heard of anywhere that's continuing with trials. I, you know, that's a really good question. I have not either, except for the U.S. Supreme Court, as we are speaking right now. Um, but no, but they've they've ri- really risen, and we had, a, a, for example, an executive order from Governor Whitmer in Michigan provided for for protective orders uh, during the pandemic. And so, you know, we have a lot of folks, attorney generals, governors, certainly prosecutors, who are very sensitive to the need to keep victims safe and to be able to promote their security. And so, protective orders are a really good example. I, I don't know if courts are hoping, though. That's a very good question. Well, and I don't think they are, except for these emergency things. But when you were talking about having virtual hearings, I thought, you know, so many times when I'm with a victim, it just adds to the stress to have to go into court and see that person. So I'm when well, you said that, my spidey sense went, whoa, maybe this could be a good yeah, thing. My, my spidey sense, hearings. and I've been talking a lot about this a lot lately, so I'm glad to chat about it with you, is that we're – I think we're going to be looking at changing the traditional business model of victim services, which is, you know, in-person, very upfront and personal, very hands-on, if you will. And now we've had to see, you know, people have had to adapt and certainly adopt new procedures. But I've talked to so many victim advocates who say that teleservices are going well and that there are some survivors who are grateful to not have to go into an office, you know, look for parking and all the stressors that go along with just having a meeting with the counselor and advocate in the middle of the day. And so I think teleservice is going to be a big part of the future of the victim's field. And, you know, we have amazing telehealth models that have been remarkable, particularly in rural, remote, and tribal areas. And I think we're going to start applying the lessons learned and best practices from telehealth to my field of victim services. And I think it's a good thing. I think they're certainly more cost-effective. They do not replace in-person services, but they can certainly augment them, especially in times like now when in-person services are just not possible. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, in working with victims, oftentimes there's the hug or the touch on the hand. That 
certainly isn't going to be coming. But there's also a number of victims who don't want anybody to touch them. So come see, come saw, I guess. And yeah, and advocates. Uh, I talk about, boy, you know, treat every victim and survivor as an individual. That is very, very, um, it's very, very important. You know, yeah. I always... I always train victim advocates, don't touch victims. Don't reach out unless the victim reaches you, gives you permission. I mean, that's just something, you know, that's uh, highly personal for people. But that's part of really, I think, being a good victim advocate and knowing that every single person that comes before you as a client is going to be unique and have, you know, very unique needs that you cannot broad brush uh, victims. I learned that over 30 years ago, and it was an important lesson that I still take to heart today. Well, yeah, exactly. And you bring up a good point here. What what is a good victim advocate? What characteristics? What 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 makes a good victim advocate? Well, it's interesting because coming up, I've been in the field a very long time. Uh, a lot of the original victim advocates were themselves survivors, and I think that is true today. And if you're not a survivor, it's really you can never understand what a victim goes through, but you can certainly make immense efforts to try. And that's, that's an important part of it is to, to really you know, treat, know the research because the research is great. But as I said earlier, you can't broad brush victims. And so you need to get to know the nuance of a person's life, the person's history, to be able to do a good needs assessment especially that looks at not just the victimization at hand, but the, the trauma history that a person may have, um, uh, any maladaptive coping skills they may have that might interfere with, with, uh, interfere with their uh, mental health. So to be able to do, I think, a good needs assessment and then to do a case plan that addresses those needs and that's flexible enough, you know, as the needs become met and new needs may arise, that you're able to just stay on top of, of what the victim needs. And, and the other thing is that, you know, victims need autonomy. And that's a, it's a big word, but probably, for me, the most important one when dealing with victims. You know, most victims still do not report. Less, they don't report crimes. Less than half of crimes are reported to law enforcement. And while I'd like to see that increase, I understand why victims don't report. And we need to make sure that they have the autonomy to make that choice. I mean, very good examples are women in intimate partner violence situations. They fear that if they report, they will be further harmed, and very often they are. And so victims make decisions based upon what's best for them. And as a good victim advocate, you know, I will get them to tell me what's best for them, and then I will support their autonomy and, and help them make decisions that are very specific to the choices that they're making. And you know, I always tell victim advocates, you're not going to always agree with the victim's choice. But it is not our place to verbally disagree. It is not our place to judge. It is our place and our role to help the person, um, um, you know, have the best uh, capacity based upon the choice that he or she makes as a victim. One of the things that I'm researching right now uh, and looking for is somebody who can talk about the whole issue of the worthy victim which is what you're talking about, the victim that makes a choice that we, the experts, don't necessarily agree with. We don't think it's the best choice. And uh, traditionally, uh, that worthy victim uh, has been perceived as either less than or, you know, unwilling to uh, help herself, you know, and, and it's human nature to kind of feel that way. If I'm an advocate and I know, and I'm not saying every advocate felt this way, I'm just saying it's a phenomenon that's been recognized. Not every a victim will, as you describe, behave and make the choices that we think she should make. And the notion of the worthy victim, is that is that something that you uh, caution against? Is that something that you well, have? I, I, I would use that terminology myself, but I, I just know, um, again, that every single person is unique. And there are so many reasons why People don't report crimes. Today, only 11% of serious violent crime victims access victim services, which means that 89% don't, uh, which worries me. I, I wonder, you know, are we doing something? Could we do more to make them our services more accessible? But for a lot of victims, it is, you know, a choice they're making based on the circumstances in their life. And, and you raise a really good point, Heather. I, if 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 you if anyone is a has a an ounce of judgmental or judginess in their personality, they can't be a victim advocate. That's just not an acceptable uh, personality trait in our field because, 
you are dealing with people who the last thing they need is to be judged. They need to um, have someone who can help them help themselves, and that's basically the, the role of a good advocate. And I think as a human being, it's tough for us to not judge. We have to work at not doing that. It's not something necessarily that comes naturally to mo- to most people. You have to be aware of what you're doing, I, I think. Yeah, no, and I think um, self-awareness is, I mean, we do a lot of work um, on self-awareness, both in terms of victim services, but also making sure that we take care of ourselves. And, and again, there are a couple of traits. You know, if you're someone who is who is judgy or someone who is, critical or someone, I mean, it's really hard. It's another human nature as we compare other people's lives to our own, and we just cannot, we can't do that with victims. We have to have, you know, professional and ethical boundaries that really separate ourselves and our lives mm-hmm. personally from those of the people that we're, that we're trying to help. Well, and that brings us back to the whole notion of who, who, who is a good person to go into this field. And you mentioned that the movement started with victims being the advocates. A hundred years ago when I was getting my master's degree from uh, in domestic violence from the University of Colorado, Denver, there was a huge discussion about that in my cohort. Most of the people there were not victims. They were, however, victims' advocates. And there was a big discussion, a big uh, a point of, and I won't say contention, but a point of concern between those who had not been victims and those who had been victims and whether or not a person who had been a victim could make a good advocate and could separate herself from her own experience to help the other person. Well, I, you know, I think about Mothers Against Drunk Driving and the Clary Center and Parents of Murdered Children and so many domestic violence programs are all started by survivors of, you know, really horrific crimes. And I'm proud to say I've worked with, you know, way back when with a lot of those folks. And there is a lot, there's a lot of training that happens. I mean, we teach survivors that, you know, it's important that if they're going to be a victim advocate, that the other victim becomes their primary focus. And I think that that is a, a, a big challenge because, when you have trauma in your life and you're confronted with someone else's trauma, um, it can, you know, raise, it can increase your potential for vicarious trauma, but also it can really have some challenges to ethical boundaries. And, and But that can be learned. I mean, so much of being a good victim advocate, I mean, inherently you have to be, you know, a decent, nice person. But everything else, we do training like you wouldn't believe. And we do, we've done training programs that, I've done many that are are for survivors only, where you get a lot of the issues, you address a lot of the issues that we're talking about. How do you rise above your own victimization? You know, it's hard not to draw comparisons. And you talk it out. I mean, let people know it's okay to have those feelings, but that professional boundaries are super important in our field. I mean, you can never say to a victim, even if you're yourself a victim, that I know how you feel. Those are, that's the worst sentence you could ever say to a crime yeah. survivor. I mean, for me, it's always like I can't possibly understand how you feel, but working with you, um, you're going to help. You're going to help me try, try to, try to learn, try to understand. Which again gives them the autonomy and gives them the control over their lives. And we should not be doing anything that takes that sense of control away from them. If, if that makes sense. That does make sense, and that's Good. why I knew I wouldn't be a good advocate. Because, I mean, really, seriously, that's how I knew I, I, because I didn't think I could meet that criteria. It's too hard for me to separate my own personal experience. But your own personal experience doesn't have to, have to be your experience as a victim. Whatever we do is influenced by our pasts and our experiences, uh, whether it's riding a merry-go-round and having a wonderful time with mom and dad or whatever. The, those pieces, those components of our lives always influence who we yeah, are and well, how we behave. Oh. Absolutely well said, and that's why, I mean, I can't tell you, I mean, personal disclosure, you know, vicarious trauma in my field is something we're all very concerned about, and I can't tell you the times that I have helped specific survivors where, you know, the the big red flag goes off in my brain because of something from my childhood or from when I was in college, or, you know, it takes me back to a, a point in my life that I maybe thought I had forgotten about. And so that, you know, that happens a lot because when you're helping people cope with trauma, you know, you're, sometimes you're scratching below your own, your own service. But, again, I don't think there's not a state victim assistance academy or 
you know, a, a <laughs> national conference that doesn't have specific training programs that address that. We sort of know what our, you know, what our challenges are. Um, and being, you know, being ethical and having professional boundaries is a, a really important one. And then the, the other thing I want to say, because you were talking about Denver, by the way, which is like the epicenter of great victim services in the entire universe, some of the best advocates, <laughs> right Kudos where you were. Barbara, yeah, Kudos no, Denver Barbara, is... Yeah. Colorado advocates are just among, I mean, honestly, they're among the best. But a lot of times I, I think it's when people, they don't disclose being a victim. And so I never assume that if you're in a room of 20 people and half of them talk about being a victim, you know, I, I'd make a, an assumption statistically that there's another five or six or seven who have had victimization and trauma experiences. And, and that's really important is that people people do not always feel comfortable Disclosing, and I, I can't tell you the times where people say, "Oh, are you a victim?" And it's, it's like you don't ask that question. It's just not—it's impolite, <laughs> it's unethical. Yeah. And, and what I'm saying is that that—that that again is part of the autonomy that people choose uh, if they are going to disclose. And some survivors—I mean, I can't tell you my colleagues who are advocates who have selectively disclosed to me that they are survivors, but they don't say it publicly. And so you know, it's kind of—it's—it's all over. And again, that's part of uh, I think our discussion about just human nature. It's just recognizing that we're all, um, you know, we're all different, and we have to respect and certainly reflect that in our work as, as advocates. Well, and, and I remember, have, you know, hearing that discussion about victims not being good advocates and thinking that's—I don't think—I think that's odd. <laughs> I think that's an odd thing, and I think that that's been again that was a hundred years ago, and I think pretty much the field has. Uh, I know a lot of advocates who have been victims, and they're great advocates. So hopefully that was laid to rest years ago. But I remember just being surprised by that yeah. whole discussion. But it, in some ways, it doesn't. You know, now sense. we can. You could actually get a master's degree and a doctorate in victimology. I mean, we have universities, University of New Haven, uh, one of my alma maters, Cal State University, Fresno, that had the first victimology program. I mean, you can actually get. A criminal justice degree, victimology degree. And that's something that when I started 36 years ago, we didn't have. And so the professionalization of um, academia and its application to our field has been remarkable. And I cannot tell you the number of survivors who go out and get their master's degrees in victimology. And it's like, you go. You know, that's just that they can take you their just... own bad experience and, and gain from it to help others. You just gave me such a wonderful thought because uh, I'm finishing up a, a, a PhD in organizational psychology. I did not want to go into organizational psychology. I wanted to go into forensic psychology, but the university that I could go to did not offer it at that time. It now does. And so what I was thinking is after I get my PhD, I will go back, take classes and change that major to forensic psychology. However, is there a program somewhere on forensic victimology? You know, I don't know, but I will find out. I'm writing myself a sticky note right now. That's a great, great question. I do not know of one, but I do not know of everything. So <laughs> You don't? Why am I talking No, but if there, there isn't, there, there should be. <laughs> Boy, the, the intersection between those two. Now, I can tell you the University of New Haven, and I'm happy to link you up with the the uh, the department chair, uh, Dr. Henry, Henry Lee, runs their their um, forensic program, and so there's a lot of intersection between forensics and victimology. They have some of the smartest people. One of their faculty is just a great stalking expert. They have an expert on intimate partner violence, and so they they intersect in academia at the University of New Haven as as we do in real life. I mean, I think we started out today kind of talking about the partnerships that we need and and um, and that's, I think, starting to be reflected in, in academia. Well, it just struck me as you were talking that, gosh, this seems like a, a, a field that would be very useful. Maybe, you know, there's somebody out there um, that would be interested in looking into forensic victimology and creating a program. And, I mean, that's how these things get started. But that, that, it's, Our whole field is full of good ideas that we went, hmm, someone should do that, and then someone does, and then it's like magical. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'll do it. <laughs> I, I, that's that's perfect. I mean, it's, it's like when I selected the um, uh, forensic psychology, I thought, well, not really. You know, I don't really want, but that's the closest thing to what what I do want. 
And then when they came up with the forensic psychology, I thought, yep, okay, that's closer. But, boy, forensic victimology would be spot on. Yeah. So, you know, that sounds to me like a really great field to explore, but that's just my, my personal thing. Well, when you are dealing with people who are going to be victims advocates, what kind of training do they have? Oh, gosh. Well, every the Office of Victims of Crime in the Justice Department, God bless them, um, in 1994 started uh, the National Victim Assistance Academy. And we started it at Fresno State and then, then Washburn and Medical University of South Carolina. And from the National Academy emerged, um, almost every state now has victim assistance academies. And we teach, I mean, up front, I mean, I wrote the section on the history of the field. It's important to understand that we stand on the shoulders, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, many of, of whom, as we've discussed, are themselves crime survivors. And then we do a lot of work on the mental health needs of victims, how to do a good needs assessment. We get into things like case planning. Um, certainly we teach about the justice systems, which are criminal, juvenile, tribal, federal, and civil. There's five different justice systems that often cases will, you know, they'll be checkerboard cases, we call them. They'll cross over um, jurisdictions. And then we, we do specialty training, like victims of using, again, there's remarkable research, um, victims of child abuse, drunk driving, homicide, sexual assault, uh, emerging field now of um, elder abuse and elders who need care and um, protection, those, for example, in, in nursing homes. And so we, we get very specific. And as a victim advocate, you always think, you know, I only want to work with domestic violence victims. But it's important to sort of understand victimology foundation of, of the research of all victims because very often a domestic violence victim will have a history of, of, of child abuse or, you know, w- was sexually assaulted in high school and things like that. So, you know, really helping people understand the different impact areas of crime. And then we do a lot um, on self-care and vicarious trauma. And I've written a lot about that, too, because I, 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 I've endured it a lot. I've learned a lot about boundaries by breaking them early on in my career. And so a big part is teaching victim advocates, uh, you know, the ethics of being a victim advocate. There's an entire um, training program just on um, ethics. And then um, we now have toolkits. OVC has developed a number of toolkits. One is on vicarious trauma. One is on mass violence, which is uh, my halftime work is dealing, helping communities prepare for and respond to mass violence crimes like shootings and bombings and 9-11-type terrorist attacks. And so it's a little bit, you know, a little bit. It's a lot. It's very, very diverse. But, you know, the basics are really just this, this, the, the basic skills of being a victim advocate and certainly having a pretty good understanding of the mental and behavioral health impact that crime has on someone. Do you think our country does a good job with crime victims? Are there other countries that are doing more, doing better? Well, you know, that's a really good question. And I think people look to us as being a leader in, in victim assistance, and I think we are. The caveat is that, you know, it's better in some states. We need great improvements in rural, remote, and tribal areas. We've just in the past 10 years started to focus on elder issues, which for me, now that I'm becoming an elder, is really important. So, yes, but other countries, and I've worked around the world. I actually worked for years with the State Department helping. We trained every embassy to help American citizens who are victimized abroad. And other states, I think back to the early 80s, uh, Norway and Sweden were way ahead of the world on drunk driving laws and victim assistance. And France does a remarkable uh, work on domestic violence. And so, you know, depending on where you are around the world, uh, I'm sorry, uh, New Zealand is the leader in restorative justice. So everyone sort of has their specialties, but generally I do think the world looks to us. And we do have a World Society on Victimology. We do have an international group that deals with mass violence and terrorism um, that, that I've been really lucky to, to work with. And so there's, there's leadership, not just among victim advocates, but I think this has become it's such a universal issue, Heather, that, that leaders, and you know, certainly here in this country, from the administration down to state governors and, and attorney generals, there's, there's just leadership in recognizing 
that victims are an important constituency and you know nobody asked to be a victim of crime and so it's really important that we have a safety net to to help them in the recovery process you know in domestic violence we talk a lot about the whole blame the victim syndrome which we hopefully have gotten pretty much away from but still it still occurs it's still out there do you see that with other crimes oh my gosh yes i do and uh, i mean sexual assault is one that is is absolutely we are always judging and second-guessing a victim, you know, where he or she was and what they wore and where was alcohol consumed and everything else. I mean, the blame the blame game. And that has, not, that has not reached the level of improvement that it should. I mean, that was something I was horrified about back in the 80s, and it's something that I still am very concerned about today, um, that we just, you know, it, someone makes a choice to harm someone else, and that the onus of responsibility and accountability should fall on that person and not the person that they chose to harm. And, you know, that's another thing about us, you know, being, we are a a judgy culture going back to that whole discussion. And I think people believe there, but for the grace of God go I, or I would never do fill in the blank. So I won't become a victim. And as most, if not all victims know, there's just not a kernel of truth to that. Well, you know, you bring up a good point because, I I have been a victim. Uh, I don't often say that, but what I noticed at first is I would blame myself. I would blame myself, as, and if somebody inferred that I did something wrong, I'd think, yes, I am so stupid, I'm so terrible, I did something wrong. And then as the years passed, I started thinking, wait a minute, I didn't do anything wrong. And so yeah. then I, when somebody would make a comment or whatever, I had anger. You know, how could you say that to me? How could you do that? Da, da, da. And over the years, that has been refined. And now when people say something that infers that I'm to blame, I just kind of smile and say, I understand what you're doing. If you can make it my fault, something that I did or something that I didn't, you're smarter than that, and you'll be able to do it the right way, and so therefore you are protected. I understand that you're saying that as a protective measure. It's not because you're mean and nasty. It's because you're trying to protect yourself. No, it's and well, thank you for sharing that with me. And I'm I'm sorry you were a victim because it's a horrible thing to to go through. But you're right; it's it is a self defense mechanism. And I always tell people, don't blame victims because they are doing enough of self blame. I mean, that is, you know, victims are filled with second guessing themselves and self blaming and wondering what if you know could I have done something differently? And 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 that's a natural reaction, especially when you're mired in trauma. But when other people do it, and I understand it, and I try not to be critical of those who do it, unless they're a judge or, or I mean, there's there's someone in a public forum. I have no problem calling mm-hmm. calling them out, as I have done on many um, occasions, because there there is no there is no room for blame with victims. There just isn't. It's, it's the worst thing that we can do that would can set a victim so far back in their you know, efforts to re- to recover in the aftermath of, of victimization. And you certainly know how that feels, it sounds like. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, you know, it does improve over years. You know, it does improve. It doesn't go away, but it does improve. One of the things, oh, gosh, I'm looking at our time and I'm going, wow, we, we could keep talking for a long time. But I know you're a busy lady and I know you've only given me so much time. So and I, I do appreciate it. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you about, and I know you don't work for the U.S. Department of Justice Office for Victims of Crime, but they did just release their online resource guide. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that's for National Crime Victims' Rights Week. And um, this it, Crime Victims' Rights Week, it was started um, by, uh, proclaimed by President Reagan shortly after he himself was a victim of an assassination attempt. And um, every year the field comes together in April just to honor crime victims and also the, you know, countless advocates and justice professionals and others who assist them. And it's our time every year just to, I think, really be grateful that we have a victim assistance field, but also to recognize the struggles that crime victims go through and that there's a lot that individuals and communities can do to, to help crime victims. And it's, you know, for us, this was a strange year because we could not do any of the usual, you know, we do ceremonies and training programs and public educational efforts. But I, I will say social media was alive with the sound of promoting National Crime Victims Rights Week. And I was 
quite proud of that, just so that we were getting the message out to people that there are, you know, the number I just got is over 12,000 victim assistance programs in this country, which is remarkable in itself. And there are services and support if people choose to um, access them. And to be able to let people know about the services and literally any kind of crime victim, there is a service, and some of them aren't as prevalent as others, but you know, we can link most people with, with, with support. And that's something that, you know, after 36 years, I'm really proud of because back in the day, you know, our services were spotty. And now, you know, we're not, we're not perfect, but we are pretty, pretty out there. And uh, certainly I, I'm very proud of the work that, that our field has accomplished. And I think we'll continue to do, do so. I know in the future we will be, you know, rising to the occasion as we have for decades to make sure that we're doing evidence-based work that helps victims and doesn't harm them. That is, I, I've had such a good time hearing from you and learning more about national crime victims and the movement that's happened. The information that you sent me has a lot to do with moving forward. And one of the quotes there on the article about the, the whole thing that you sent me that really struck with me is it says, moving forward, da-da-da-da, to ensure that crime victims' rights are not only observed annually, but practiced daily. Yeah. That's really significant. That's really yeah. significant. And That's, what are thank you? you? That's been my mantra since probably 1990, because I've worked on the Crime Victims' Rights Week resource guide for years. And, and back then, and thank you, I... I I, th- I just kept thinking it's great that we do this once a year for a week, but you know our job and our future is making sure that we observe victims' rights and provide victim services on a daily basis and not just once a year. And I mean the the exciting thing is that our, our I think our field is well equipped to do that, and I think that we do love the pomp and circumstance of Victims' Rights Week, but we also know that the rubber meets the road, you know, 365 days a year, and that we have to be vigilant and really committed to making sure that this work is done daily around the clock, because that is when crime occurs, and that is when victims need our assistance. And I've had such a good time talking with you, and I've learned so much. I, I I really appreciate your time, and I would be interested in learning about, uh, you know, any, any kind of follow-up you can think of on a, a degree in forensic victimology. I think that would be cool. So I will find out and get back to you. I'd appreciate that. And the other question, the final question that I'm going to leave you with is how does somebody, if somebody's a victim, where do they go? How do they find victim's assistance in their state? Um, You know, the easiest thing to do is to just use a search engine and put in crime victim assistance. They can also go to ovc.gov, which is the Justice Department's uh, federal victim office, and they have an online victim assistance directory where you can find services by your zip code or by the type of victimization that you have endured. And so that's a a, a really good resource. Um, We also have the National Domestic Violence Hotline and the National Sexual Assault Hotline. And actually, we have 23 toll-free numbers now for different types of victim assistance. So it's out there. It's pretty easy to, to find it's for, most, for most victims. But just using a search engine is a good place to start. And the other thing is to ask. You, you can ask people. You can ask your police department has a list of referrals. Your local prosecutor has a list of referrals. We have so many good um, resource directories that go specifically to victim services, but also the many other services and support that they need after uh, the crime occurs. And I know in our location, my location, the police are a a wonderful resource. I mean, they just hand you business cards and everything else. So wonderful. And thank you so much. Thank you for the work you do. My pleasure. I've enjoyed this. And thank you for sharing with us. And thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways.